0: Welcome to the Inspirational Living Podcast, brought to you in part by Book of Zen, makers of wearable inspiration for a better world. Today's podcast has been edited and adapted from the book entitled The Mind and Its Education by George Herbert Betts, published in 1906. Habit is our best friend or worst enemy. We are walking bundles of habits. Habit is a cable which we cannot break. Such are the popular expressions linked with habitual behavior. In other words, let me know your habits of life and you have revealed your moral standards and conduct. Let me discover your intellectual habits and I understand your type of mind and methods of thought. In short, Our lives are largely a daily round of activities dictated by our habits in this line or that. Most of our movements and acts are habitual. We think as we have formed the habit of thinking. We decide as we are in the habit of deciding. We sleep or eat or speak as we have grown into the habit of doing these things. But while habit may be considered a tyrant, its potential benefits far exceed the bad. Many people, when they speak or think about habit, give the term a very narrow or limited meaning. They have in mind only certain moral or personal tendencies, usually spoken of as one's habits. But in order to understand habit in a thorough and complete way, we must broaden our concept to include every possible line of physical and mental activity. Habit may be defined as the tendency of the nervous system to repeat any act that has been performed once or many times. In time, the tissues of the human body can be molded into almost any form you choose. For example, wrong bodily posture can produce curvature of the spine. Muscles may be trained into the habit of keeping the shoulders straight or letting them droop. Those of speech to give us a clear-cut, accurate articulation or a careless, halting one, and those of the face to give us a cheerful countenance or a glum and morose expression. The tissue of the nervous system is the most sensitive and easily molded of all bodily tissues. In fact, it is probable that the real habit of our characteristic walk, gesture, or speech resides in the brain rather than in the muscles which it controls. So delicate is the organization of the brain structure, and so unstable its molecules, that even the perfume of a flower, the song of a bird, or a fleeting dream has so modified a child's brain that they will never again be as if these things had not been experienced. An old Chinese fairy tale hits upon a fundamental and vital truth. It tells us that each child is accompanied day and night, every moment of their life, by an invisible fairy with a pencil and notebook. It is the duty of this fairy to write down every deed of the child, both good and bad, in an indelible record which will one day rise as a witness for or against them. So it is in truth with our brains. A wrong act may have been performed in secret. No living being may ever know that we performed it, and merciful providence may forgive it. But the ever-dutiful monitor of our deeds was all the time beside us writing the record, and the history of that act is inscribed forever in the tissues of our brain. It will remain with us a handicap till our dying day, and at some critical moment, in a great emergency, we shall be in danger of defeat because of that long-past and forgotten act. Since we must form habits, it is not in our power to say whether we will form habits or not. Once started, habits go on forming by themselves day and night, steadily and relentlessly. Habit is thus one of the great factors to be reckoned with in our lives. The question is not shall we form habits, but what habit shall we form? And we have to answer that largely on our own. For habits do not just happen, nor do they just come to us ready-made. We ourselves create them, from day to day, through the acts we perform. And insofar as we have control over our acts, we can determine our habits. One of the benefits of habit is that it is one of nature's methods of economizing time and effort, while at the same time securing greater skill and efficiency. This is easily seen when we note that habit tends towards automatic action. Everyone has observed how much easier it is to do something skillfully, be it driving a car, playing the piano, or hammering a nail, when the movements involved have ceased to be consciously directed and become automatic. Practically all increases in skill, whether physical or mental, depend on our ability to form habits. Habit holds fast to the skill already attained, while practice or intelligence makes ready for the next step in advance. Could we not form habits, we should improve but little in our ways of doing things, no matter how many times we did them over again. We would be obliged to go through the same bungling process of dressing ourselves as when we first learned to as children. Our writing would proceed as awkwardly in high school as in elementary school. Our eating as adults would be as messy and wide of the mark as when we were babies, and we would miss in a thousand ways the motor skills that now seem so easy and natural. All highly skilled occupations, and those demanding great manual dexterity, depend on our habit-forming power for the accurate and automatic movements required of them. So it is with mental skill, A great portion of the fundamentals of our education must be made automatic, must become matters of habit. For example, we set out to learn the symbols of speech. We hear words and see them on the printed page. Associated with these words are meanings or ideas. Habit binds the word and the idea together, so that to think of the one is to call up the other, and voila, language is learned. Likewise, we must learn numbers, so we practice combinations, and with 4 times 6 or 3 times 8, we associate 24. Habit secures this association in our minds, and lo, we soon know our multiplication tables. And so on throughout the whole range of our learning. We learn certain symbols or facts or processes, and habit takes hold and renders these automatic so that we can use them freely, easily, and with skill, leaving our thought free for matters that cannot be made automatic. For there is a limit to our mental energy, and also to the number of objects that we are able to attend to at one time. It is only when our attention has been freed from the many things that can always be thought of or done in the same way, that the mind can devote itself to the real problems that require judgment, imagination, or reasoning. The writer whose spelling and punctuation do not take care of themselves will hardly make a success of writing. The mathematician whose number, processes, and formulas are not automatic in their mind can never hope to make progress in mathematical thinking. The speaker who while speaking has to think of their gestures, voice, or enunciation will never sway audiences by their logic or eloquence. Habit is also the foundation of personality. Biologists tell us that it is the constant and not the occasional in the environment that impresses itself on an organism. So it is that the habitual in our lives builds itself into our character and personality. In a very real sense, we are what we are in the habit of doing and thinking. Our thinking is as characteristic as our physical acts. We may form the habit of thinking things out logically, or of jumping to conclusions, of thinking critically and independently, or of taking things unquestioningly on the authority of others. We may form the habit of carefully reading great books, or of skimming sentimental and trashy ones, of choosing elevating, ennobling companions, or piling around with the opposite of being a good conversationalist and doing our part in a social group, or of being a drag on the conversation and needing to be entertained. We may form the habit of observing the things about us and enjoying the beautiful in our environment, or of failing to observe and to enjoy. Even in good habits there is danger, for habit is the opposite of attention. Habit relieves attention of unnecessary strain. Every habitual act was at one time a voluntary act. That is, it was performed under act of attention. As the habit grew, attention was gradually rendered unnecessary, until finally it dropped out entirely. And therein lies the danger. Habit once formed has no way of being modified unless in some way attention is called to it for a habit left to itself becomes more and more firmly fixed. The rut grows deeper. In very few, if any, of our actions can we afford to have this be the case. Our habits need to be progressive, they need to grow, to be modified, to be improved, otherwise they will become an encrusting shell, fixed and unyielding, which will limit our growth. It is necessary, then, to keep our habitual acts under some surveillance of attention, to pass them in review for inspection every now and then, that we may discover possible modifications which will make them more serviceable. We need to be inventive, constantly looking for better ways of doing things. Habit takes care of our standing, walking, sitting. But how many of us could not improve their poise and carriage if they could? Our speech has become largely automatic, but no doubt all of us might remove faults of enunciation, pronunciation, or stress from our speaking. So we might also better our habits of study and thinking, our methods of memorizing, or our manner of attending to things. But this will require something of heroism on our part. For to follow the well-beaten path of custom is easy and pleasant while to break out of the rut of habit and start a new line of action is difficult and disturbing. Most people prefer to keep doing things as they always have done them, to continue reading and thinking and believing as they have long been in the habit of doing, not so much because they feel that their way is best, but because it is easier than to change. Hence the great mass of us settle down on the plane of mediocrity and become old fogies, We learn to do things passably well, cease to think about improving our ways of doing them, and fall into a rut. Only the few go on. They make use of habits as the rest do, but they also continue to modify them at critical points of action, and so make their habits an ally, instead of accepting them as a tyrant. So how do we develop good habits and improve upon our existing ones? There are three rules that I personally like to follow. Number one, when acquiring a new habit or abandoning an old one, we must take care to launch ourselves with as strong an initiative as possible. Put yourself firmly in conditions that encourage the new way. Make social engagements that are incompatible with the old way. Take a public pledge if the situation allows. In short, Develop your resolution with every aid you know. This will give your new beginning such momentum that the temptation to break down will not occur as soon as it otherwise might, and every day a breakdown is postponed adds to the chances of it not recurring at all. Number 2. Never suffer an exception to occur until the new habit is securely rooted in your life. Each lapse is like dropping a ball of string which one is carefully winding up. A single slip undoes more than a great many turns will wind again. Continuity of training is the great means of making the nervous system act infallibly right. The need of securing success emboldens your future vigor. Number 3. Seize the very first opportunity to act on every resolution you make and on every emotional prompting you may experience in the direction of the habits you aspire to gain. It is not in the moment of their forming, but in the moment of their producing motor effects in the body, that resolutions and aspirations communicate the new set to the brain. And finally, do not be disturbed or afraid of becoming, quote, a walking bundle of habits. You already are one and insofar as your good actions predominate over your bad ones, that much will your good habits outweigh your bad habits. Silently, moment by moment, skillful efficiency is growing out of all worthy acts done well. Every bit of heroic self-sacrifice, every battle fought and won, every good deed performed, is being positively credited to you in your nervous system, and they will add their force Toward the successful achievement of your ambitions. The Inspirational Living Podcast is a production of The Living Hour. For free transcripts of our podcasts, visit us online at livinghour.org. Today's podcast was sponsored in part by autosuggestion.io. Transform your life in 30 days. Discover the Autosuggestion Sound Method at autosuggestion.io. And by Book of Zen, makers of wearable inspiration and motivational gifts. Visit them online at BookofZen.com. Subscribe to the Inspirational Living Podcast by looking us up in the iTunes Store. If you're using an Android phone, download the Stitcher app and you'll find us on there. We deliver new podcasts twice a week, every Tuesday and Thursday. Thanks for joining us. I look forward to talking to you next time.